The question is, why do we sing? This is a question that I know Cody has asked us before from this very spot. This is a question that I know John asks every week. This is a question that we ask in our staff meetings a lot. We ask it sometimes in in a bit of a discouragement. And so this morning, I just want to affirm and appreciate you as a congregation for singing. And I want to gently admonish us from the scripture as building a bridge into our text this morning for why singing for God's people is not an option. Singing for the men of God is not an option. Singing for the women of God, for the children of God is not an option. Let me read this scripture to you and then we're going we're gonna to build a bridge from that into our text this morning. We'll read that text and then we'll pray together and we will begin. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, Beginning in verse 15, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Verse 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This morning, we are going to turn to the hymn book, to the song book of the people of Israel, of God's people throughout the Old Testament in a section, particularly in the middle of the Psalms, where they're dealing with not a good situation. In fact, they're given a strong warning here that I think is applicable to us today. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 78. Psalm 78. Psalms is in the, about the middle of your Bibles. So you just fall open there. Psalm 78. Again, the hymn book of the people of Israel, of God's people in the Old Testament. And so often they would sing these. I will spare you that this morning as we read. I ask you to stand with me. I'm going to read the first eight verses of Psalm 78, and then we will pray. Psalm 78, a mascal of Asaph. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. Things that we have heard and known and that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn. And arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. And that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast and whose spirit was not faithful to God. Pray with me. Father, we ask this morning that you would impress in our hearts the truths of your word. Father, we ask 
that you would give us insight into what you have to teach us. We ask that you would give us soft hearts and open ears. Father, help us to be grateful for the children among us. Help us to understand what a profound responsibility you have given us to care for them. Not just physically, not just emotionally, but spiritually. So God, this morning I ask that you would renew a zeal in all of us to take seriously the mandate to disciple the next generation, to raise them up so that they would not forget your works. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. You might have noticed this morning is a little bit different. We've got all of our kids in here, praise God, uh, to be with us. We had no kids praise this morning. We did that on purpose because the text this morning uh, deals directly with children talks specifically about children, and it talks specifically about children in the context of uh, the community of God's people and in the context of their families, and so we wanted them to be a part of our time together this morning. You will also notice in your bulletin we have a, a brochure that we put together for you. Let me just confess that nobody that works in this building is creative enough to put that together, at least not me. We had a great friend of ours of our church named Brett who put that together for us and designed it, and we're just so grateful that God gives people like him gifts. It tells you a little bit about what we're trying to do as a church, what we've, what we've been thinking about for the last couple of years and what we're trying to, to just now get a handle on and get our heads around how we might, as a church family, move forward discipling the next generation. And so I hope that you'll take that with you today and look it over. But this morning, I want to talk to us from Psalm 78 about three truths, three principles from God's Word that apply to us as an entire church and to us as individual families, individual fathers and mothers who are responsible for bringing up the next generation. And that is this. The first one is that we must listen. We must listen. Number two, we must teach. And number three, we must obey. We must listen. Look back with me in verses one through three, Asaph here, not one of the more common hymn writers, but nonetheless inspired by the Holy Spirit, and so it's God's word to us. It says this, give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. This is Asaph, a teacher of Israel, someone that God had equipped and had, had used to teach his truths to his people. And so as I was preparing for this, I wondered how often we take this posture when we come to hear from the Word of God? It's a sincere question. It sounds like an egotistical question coming from the preacher. <laughs> but I have to ask myself this same question every week. I have to ask myself this same question if I download a podcast of a sermon and I set my mind to listen to it. I have to ask my same self the, 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 the same question when we go to conferences like Together for the Gospel that we were able to go to as pastors here earlier in the year. And friends, can I just tell you, it burdened me that there were brothers there who just did not listen. They would get up at, towards the end of a sermon as though it was over. They would, they would walk out and listen, people, these are mostly preachers. We're human too. We're human too. We're frail in our hearts. And in our minds. But this morning, if I could just gently challenge you and even challenge myself moving forward, do we give our ear to the teaching of the Word of God? 
Do, do, we, do we incline our ears to the words being spoken to us? People who stand before us in our Bible study classes, people who stand before us in the pulpit, people who stand before us even in our families to teach us the word of God, do we give them our ear? It's a sincere question that we have to ask ourselves every time we have the opportunity to hear from God's word. Because I remind you that God is not obligated to reveal himself to us. He, he is not obligated to come forward in the form of this book and reveal his character and his attributes and most profoundly his love to the person of Jesus Christ. He is not obligated to do it. And so we must accept it and receive it as the gift that it is. Both in the, in, in the setting of the community of God's people and even in our own lives, in our own hearts, in our own homes. So this morning and every time we have opportunity to hear from the word of God, let's give our ears to it. Let's incline our ears and even more profoundly our hearts to what is being said. Notice what Asaph says here. He says, I will open my mouth in a parable and I will utter dark sayings from of old. You know, uh, I was helped very much by just a simple study Bible as I was, I was using a study Bible to prepare for this message, and it, and it brought to my remembrance by way of a footnote, so I don't suppose, I guess that's my remembrance, it's just right there in the footnote, that Jesus, or rather uh, Matthew, in talking about Jesus teaching parables, quotes this very verse in the 13th chapter of Matthew. We're going to get there in a few weeks as we pick back up our Matthew series. In Matthew, the, the gospel writer says, hey, remember just like Asaph in the, in, the, in the Old Testament, just like Asaph in our Hebrew Bible talked about speaking in parables and teaching dark sayings from of old. Hey, listen, Jesus is about to do the same thing. Jesus is about to reveal to you deep and ancient truths about the character and the nature of God. So listen. So Asaph here is saying to the people, listen, I'm going to say something to you that is entirely profound, but, but catch this, entirely not new. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about that when we come to hear from the scripture, that when we, that when we come to church, when we open our Bibles, when we have family time, when, when we have any kind of opportunity to interact with the word of God, we are hearing nothing new. It's one of the surest signs of heresy. If a preacher stands up, I don't care if it's behind this pulpit or any church you go to and says, let me share with you something you've never seen. You better be careful. That's what Joseph Smith did. That's what Ellen G. White did. That's what cult leaders do. They say, no, no, I know that God's people have had this for going on about four or five thousand years, but we've just missed it somehow or another. I know that Christians have been studying the Bible for two thousand years, but they were just all too stupid to see what I have seen. Friends, be careful when someone says something is new. The true mark of real gospel teaching is that it is old and repetitive and redundant. And we can praise God for that because in that it reveals the steadfastness and the steady unchanging character of God that his message is unchanging that the gospel is unchanging that the stories that we have contained in the scripture are unchanging therefore he is unchanging and that is great 
great news for us. So Asaph comes to, the, comes to the nation of Israel and he says, hey, listen to me, not for anything new. In fact, let me remind you what you should already know. That's what we do every single week in preaching and in Bible study and any context that we have is we seek to remind you what you already know. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians, I'm passing on to you what I received as first importance. And he goes on to talk about how Jesus died according to the scriptures, how he was raised according to the scriptures. Listen, it ought to be in our job description as elders, something to this effect. Jog the memory of the saints. Restart their memory. Refresh their memory. That is what Asaph is doing here, and that's what we seek to do week in and week out. Not to bring you anything new, not to bring you anything novel, to bring you dark sayings from old. Listen, verse 3, things that we have, what, heard and known. Why have we heard and known them? Our fathers told us about them. Our fathers told us about them. Consider the words of the New Testament Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16, very familiar to many of you, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Or consider 2 Peter 1.3, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. What's that knowledge? The knowledge there is the knowledge of Jesus Christ contained in the scriptures. And so when we see there that our first application, our, our first uh, point, point of where we must really lean in here is that we have to listen. We have to listen. We have to listen to the voice of God through the scriptures and then through those that he has placed in our lives to teach us the scriptures, whether that be elders pastors, Bible study teachers, fathers, mothers in homes, whatever that context looks like. Hebrews 13, 7 says it this way, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And so Asaph, a teacher in Israel, is asking God's people to listen to him. And this morning, I'm asking this church and every Christian in here that whenever you have opportunity to hear from the Word of God, whether it's you reading it with your own eyes, hearing it from your parents, hearing it from your pastors, hearing it from your Bible study teachers, I'm asking you to listen. And to listen well. But there's a reason he asks us to listen. We actually see the next two points kind of flow out of that. We, we, we cannot do the next two things. We cannot teach and we cannot obey if we do not first listen. But let's pick back up here in the text in verse 4. He says, we will not hide these things. We will not hide them from their children. But tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. Notice there, it says the coming generation, the, the next generation. Asaph has in view here, if, if we were to count up, I, I believe one of the commentaries I read greatly helped me in this way, that there, there are five separate generations mentioned in these verses. Five. Five. I, I don't, I'm not good at math, but I think that spans something like maybe 150 years or something. And obviously, the implication there is a bit hyperbolic, right? That he's talking about the generations until there are no more generations, He's not saying stop at the fifth generation. He's just simply saying, 
this isn't just about our children. This isn't even about our grandchildren. This is actually about our children's 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 children. It's quite profound when you think about it that way. And so he, he tells them, he tells them what? He gives them actually a negative command. He says, we will not hide them from their children. We will not hide them. I wonder if you've considered this. I wonder if you and I have considered that when we are spiritually, uh, when, we, when we are spiritually apathetic, when we just kind of shrug our shoulders at the things of God, when we kind of lack motivation, which we all do, we all do, we all do, consider the fact that we are actually concealing God from our children. That is a devastating thing to think about. That through our inactivity, spiritually speaking, through our our passivity, through our apathy, we are hiding the God of the universe from our children. That is a terrifying prospect, friends. That's terrifying for me, and that should be terrifying for us as a church. That it is possible for us to conceal God from our children. Now listen, I'm under no illusion that God can't work through less than perfect parents. All of us are testimony of that. I don't care if you have parents of the year or if you never met your parents. None of them were perfect. And none of you are perfect as parents. I'm not a perfect parent. So God, praise God, he can and does work through our insufficiencies. But we cannot ignore that the normal way, we've been in Proverbs these last several weeks, and we know that Proverbs are what, they're not promises, but they sort of tell us how things normally work out, don't they? They sort of tell us how, if you'll do this, normally this will happen. If you'll, if you'll follow this path, normally this will happen. If you follow this path, destruction will happen. And so normally speaking, in the normal course of events, Cody likes to say it this way, that God uses the, the ordinary means of providence. A child in a home, a family in a church. That's how he speaks to us most often. And praise God he can work around our our ineptness. And praise God he does. But let's not let God's sovereignty be an excuse for our inaction. Let's not let God's sovereignty be an excuse for our apathy. Let us commit as a church to not hide the things of God from our children. Because, friends, we don't have time this morning, but the balance of this psalm, if you went and read all 72 verses, is profoundly negative. Profoundly negative. Asaph rehearses a a broad sweep of Israel's history. A broad sweep of the failings and the rebellions and the, the turning of their hearts from God. Why? Well, it must naturally be because generations prior hid God from their children, hid him, concealed him. So Asaph says, it cannot be so with us. He says that to those people, and he, he preaches from, from the grave to us. We, it, it cannot be with us that we would conceal God from our children. Notice in verse 5, he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel. There it is again, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children. <coughs> Excuse me. 
You should have in mind there things like the Exodus. Things like the Exodus. Exodus 13 verse 14 says this. Moses is giving instructions about the Passover. And he kind of takes this little aside. It's really quite a a brilliant little uh, side note there. Almost as if Moses put it in the margin. And he said, when your son asks you what this means. Why are we slaughtering this lamb? Why, why, Dad, we got to put the blood on the door frame? Like, I mean, come on, isn't that a little extreme? We have to eat the whole thing? Like, we have to kill it? We, I mean, you know, you, Passover, you read it, it's intense. You know what Moses says? He says, you tell him that this is a reminder of when God brought us out of Egypt with his strong hand. What's implied there in Exodus 13, 14? It's implied that our children are going to ask us questions. Oh, and don't they ask us questions, don't they? Our children are naturally curious. And I believe that they're naturally curious about God. Which is why we can conceal Him. I know the Bible says none seeks after God, none is righteous. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about this this image of God that is present in every human being where they cannot deny that they are created. We went and saw a movie yesterday. There was just such a profound line. It just just hit me right between the eyes. The main character is looking uh, for their parents. I know some of y'all, maybe you don't think I should go see a Disney movie. I don't know. I went and saw it. It was great. So it doesn't matter. Dory says something really profound. And I don't even think the writers understand what they put there. I I, I am convinced that these writers have no idea the profound nature of what they wrote. But people are asking her, how do you know you have parents? And you know Dory, if you know the story, she's a little loopy and doesn't remember things. and And she says, well, I'm here, so I must have come from somewhere. Hello? Pagan Disney, with all of their issues that they got. Some writer sat down and thought, well, this is a clever line. You know what that betrays? That betrays that even that writer, I don't know the man or woman from, from anybody. They may be a Christian. I don't know. But you know what it betrays? That every single human being understands they've come from somewhere. And so our children, they naturally want to know where babies come from. Go ask your mom, you know. Or whatever. But, but we can capitalize on that, right? When Moses said, when your son asks you, when he's looking at this strange display, when you come to church and when he's singing, listen, this charismatic corner over here, praise God. Because Luke, is this morning we brought him in here to sing the songs, and he just got his hands, I thought, uh-oh, uh, what's going on here, you know? So anyway, but uh, I admit, I'm still getting comfortable with it. Y'all just pray for me. But Luke was not uncomfortable. He just thought, well, that's what they're doing. I'm going to do it. Both his hands, Cody included, all up here, all like this. Listen, why? Because he's curious. He looks at that and he says, that's intriguing. That's different. That's unusual. Friends, if we don't expose them to that kind of stuff, how are they ever going to ask the question? How how are they ever going to ask the question? If we never bring our kids to worship with us, ever, if we never allow them to be a little bit disruptive, if we never include them in the community of faith, how can we expect them to worship apart from us when they leave? 
How can we expect that? So we need to take opportunities. We're going to talk later as we end here in, in, in about, I don't know how many minutes Cody's timing me today. He said, I don't know. We're going to talk a little bit about the practical ways that this works out, discipleship in the home. We'll talk about that towards the end. And we'll talk about the appropriateness of having children in their own settings and in their own age-appropriate, developmentally appropriate things. We firmly believe in that. But listen carefully. We cannot be a church that excludes children from worship on an ongoing basis. We cannot. Because we are concealing God from them. There is a church in, in my home state, I will not say the name because you would probably know it, they do not let children under 13 years old in the sanctuary. God help me, I will resign from this church if that ever came the case. I don't think it would. I know it would. These men would not allow it. I don't think you people would allow it. But I'm just telling you on record right now, I will not stand for it. And you shouldn't either. You shouldn't either. Because children are such a precious gift from God. We learned at BBS last week that, that Jesus said, let the children come unto me. And unless you have a faith like that little child, you have no part with me. So friends, let I just got so far ahead of myself now. I don't even know where I'm at. But listen, just please, with me, let us embrace the gift of children in our presence. Let us embrace the gift of children in our worship. They are a profound gift to us. And they are a profound responsibility to us. So take advantage of the opportunities that God gives us to do this. So we, we could rehearse a lot more of the, of the history of Israel, but let's kind of bring it into the present. Let's, let's take verse 5 and, and imagine that we, were, that we were saying that to ourselves. Right? It might even say something like this. He established a testimony in Iron City. Or he established a testimony in the fill-in-the-blank family. What would that look like? Well, that's your story. Right? This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. You, friends, if you are born again, if you have been adopted into the family of God, you have a story to tell. Some of you may have profound Paul-like testimonies where you were literally pulled from the depths of your sin, where you were near death, perhaps, and God saved you. Others of you might have what we like to call a boring testimony. You grew up in church. You heard the word of God. You never really rebelled in any kind of particular way, but make no mistake, you were still a rebel, the Bible says. We need all those testimonies. We need testimonies across the spectrum because you know why? It shows that God is interested in saving people out of all kinds of circumstances. And so, what are the stories that we're telling our children? We're telling them Bible stories, no doubt. This is the meat of it. This is the bulk of it. But we've got to learn to tie our story into God's story. Right? Our testimonies are not so intensely personal that they are disconnected from, from the meta-narrative of Scripture, from what God is doing from Genesis to Revelation. No, we are a part of this. We are a part of this. And so as a church family and as individual families, we, we can learn how to speak to our children, yes, what God has done in the past among His people, but also what He has done in our hearts, what He has done in our lives. It's crucial for us 
to tell children how God has established a testimony in, 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 in Jacob and Israel, in the scriptures, but also how he has established a testimony in our lives. It's a privilege for us. It's a privilege for us to be able to do this. We look at verse 6. We see it repeated. That the next generation might know them, the wonders of God, his power, his attributes, his character, his, his saving love. Even, yet, even children yet unborn. And arise and tell them to their children. Consider, again, some New Testament counterparts to this. Because we, we see here that we have in play the church and the home. Th- those are the two vehicles through which God I- I has determined to disciple the next generation. The church and the home. And actually, I probably should say that backwards. Because the home has profoundly more influence on a person than the church. Profoundly. Just by sheer volume of time that a person spends in the home. You can see that in your brochure there, the graphic about that time. But the church has a profound responsibility as well. Note here in Colossians 3, 20-21, Children, obey your parents in everything. Crickets right there. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Notice a couple of things about those two New Testament references. They were written, catch this, written to congregations. Have you thought about that? The first time that anybody read the letter to the Colossians, it was read in the assembly. When the church at Ephesus received their letter, it was read in the assembly. What's the implication? The implication there is that there was family units there to hear it. There was family units there to hear it. Children and parents. Fathers and children. And so what we see here, we see a dual approach, don't we? He's saying, listen, children, you're overhearing me, you're, you're here with your families, perhaps you're not catching every single point in the sermon, but let's not fool ourselves as adults. We don't catch every single point in the sermon. I'm under no illusions. But listen, he says, obey your parents. Period. Full stop. Obey your parents. But then what does he say to the fathers, implying what? That this, this is going to extend beyond just the church meeting. This is going to extend into home life. This is going to extend into the domestic sphere that God has placed families in and placed particularly fathers over and, and, and equipped fathers and mothers together to do this work. He says, don't provoke your children so they won't become discouraged. Don't provoke them to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. I really wish we had more time to explore this, but the truth of the matter is that while we don't have a, a point-by-point, a step-by-step plan in the New Testament for discipleship in the home. We, we can't give you a 13-step program to have a new kid by Friday. I think that's a book or something. I don't know. I haven't read it. But we can't necessarily give you that. But what we can do is we can say that the church and the home are in view here and that they must work together. And can I just say a note, just, just pastorally as, as pastors here, we rec- when we say the word home, we understand that that is a loaded loaded term. When we, when we stand here and say the Bible says that fathers should take the spiritual leadership in their home, we recognize that 
there are not fathers in every home in this church. And where they are there, some of them might not be spiritual. We recognize that not every child that comes to this church even lives with either one of their parents. So what you need to hear us say clearly is that we're not holding up some kind of idolatrous, kind of uh, perfect family with mom, dad, and 2.4 children, and a, a dog, and a fish, or whatever else you want to put in the house. And this is the thing that we say, now this is the standard of godliness. Now that's what we work towards. That's what we want it to be. That's what God's design is. But we recognize, as all of us can attest, that God works through much less than perfect circumstances. And when that family unit that I just described is not present, when that, when that, when that family is not intact, guess whose job it is to step up? Yours. Yours as the church. God wants to be a father to the fatherless. You know how he does that? Through the church. Through his people. And so while we will always say that God's design and original intent, man, woman, husband, wife, father, mother, is the standard that we will all strive towards, we recognize that in this broken and fallen world, that that is not always the case. And so as a church, we have a profound opportunity and responsibility to be a family for those who have no family. We have an opportunity and a responsibility to do that. And God gives us opportunities to do that. And we should keep our eyes and our hearts open to being used by him in that way. I will say lastly this about the, the teaching um, this is, this is going to probably embarrass this man because he is a very humble man from my point of view. But I want to ask you, how many men do you think we have teaching elementary age children on a weekly basis in this church? One. 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 I want that to settle on you. How many men do we have helping in kids' praise? Throughout the entire year? Four. And one of them receives a paycheck. So three. Friends, I had debated all week whether or not I was going to say this. You can see which side won my debate. This church affirms and believes that men have a special place in leading the people of God. We do not back down from that. We believe the scriptures teach that. Yes, there are abuses of that. Yes, there are mishandling of those kinds of things, but it doesn't make the truth any less true. But what does it say about us that our youngest, most impressionable children, these youngest disciples, have no, hardly at all, male influence inside the life of the church? None. This grieves us. We have... We have prayed and talked and strategized about this and friends we are at a loss and so I will simply put it this way I am calling the men of this church to account on this issue I'm calling you to account and so this week my exhortation to you is to seek the face of God about that issue. Seek his face.
and know that we, we are at a crossroads here. We are at a crossroads. These, these last verses here that we're, where we talk about we must obey in verses 7 and 8, listen. So that they, why are we doing all this? What's the point? Is it Bible jeopardy? Is it so we can raise good moral children? Is it so that we can look better than the pagan world? No. Why do we do it? So that they should set their hope in God. Not themselves. Not their strength. Not the pleasures of this world. One of the commentaries I read was so helpful to me in this regard. A gentleman named, uh, last name is Plumer. He's long dead. If I mispronounced his name, he can't do anything about it. But this is what he says. The end of all religious instruction is to withdraw the desires and expectations from all finite things and to raise them to God alone. That is why we talk about God. That is why we teach from the Bible. That is why we preach. That is why we do Bible study. That is why we have discipleship groups. That is why we do everything that we do so that our children and those under our care might set their hope in God, verse 7 says, and listen, and not forget the works of God. And not forget the works of God. But what? But keep his commandments. And here is verse 8, which sets the tone for the rest of the psalm that we don't have time to read. And, And Asaph says, that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation. Oh, this is heartbreaking. A generation whose heart was not steadfast and whose spirit was not faithful to God. That ought to terrify us. These people in Israel, consider the evidence that they had of God's existence. The parting of the Red Sea, the the plagues in Egypt, the manna from heaven, and on and on we could go. And yet, what did they do? They forgot. Why? Because they weren't told. I have searched and and prayed and thought about, is there's got to be a more profound explanation? There's got to be something we're missing. There's nothing we're missing. They just weren't told. Judges 2.10 is a terrifying verse. It says that after that generation was gathered up to their fathers, after that generation died, there came an entire generation that knew not the Lord. And then you, you guys have been doing your Bible reading. You know the book of Judges is R-rated because of that fact. And so, friends, we must obey. We must obey. We must listen, we must teach, and we must obey. Let me, let me turn to a scripture here as we close, just as, to, to help us think through this. Because Paul promises us that this is just as likely to happen in our New Testament era. Do you realize we are more privileged than the people of Israel? Because we have God's full and complete revelation of himself, namely and chiefly in the person of Jesus Christ, Hebrews chapter 1 says. We are far and above privileged over the people of Israel, privileged over them. But Paul says, you know, this this is going to happen. This is going to happen. He says this, 2 Timothy chapter 3, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having all the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. 
For among them there are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins, and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Jans and Jambres opposed Moses, there's an Old Testament reference, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. How can we make this folly plain to all? How can we make it plain to our children? Teaching them. Teaching them. Teaching them in the best way possible when they are in this building and teaching them the best way possible when they depart from here. In their home, wherever that is. And again, I told you that looks very different in a lot of households, but all I can tell you is this, that sometimes, I have found this to be true in my own life, sometimes we overthink it. Sometimes we think if I don't lead three hymns or pray songs and pray for 14 minutes and teach them about four different doctrines from the New Testament that I'm failing my children. Listen, friends, you can pray with him at night. All right, Deuteronomy chapter 6 tells us that as we go, we teach them. On the road, on vacation, at bedtime, at bath time. At, I think Luke has started to praying in tongues. I don't know what that's about. But he, after we pray at night, he goes... Amen. You know, like he's accomplished something, but he's learning something. He's learning something. All right? He's not ready for a systematic theology exam. That'll come when he's like four or five, but he's learning something. So men especially, can I just speak to you? Just don't, be, just don't beat yourself up. Don't think about what you failed to do in the past. Commit today. Commit today to talk to your children about the scriptures, to ask them questions about what happened at church. That's why we give them that notebook. So they can go home and talk to you about it. That's family discipleship, friends. That's where it starts. And God will give you grace to work up to different levels of things. And then when you get teenagers, you just better get ready for the questions that come. We had one in our house this week that was profoundly deep. But God will equip you. And he will use the church family to help you. So be encouraged in that. Can I pray for us? And then I believe uh, we will have a time of offering and then we will be dismissed. Father, we are mindful that none of us do this perfectly. In fact, most of us don't do it all that well. And so, God, we ask that you would just empower us as a church to take seriously the mandate to disciple the next generation. We pray that you would give us insight, that you would give the men and women of this church insight into how to best teach children and young people, how to best lead the next generation. Father, we confess we don't have it all figured out. We confess that, that there's so much that confounds us, that there are so many influences in the world that compete for the attention of our children and young people. God, we need your help. So I pray this morning that you would renew a commitment in the hearts of our people, renew a commitment among us, among the leadership of this church, from, from all across this room, to not conceal you from our children. Father, we do not want to be a stubborn and rebellious generation. We do not want to endure the consequences of that. So help us to be steadfast. We know that it can only come from your grace. It can only come from your empowerment through the Holy Spirit. It can only come from your gracious hand. So Father, I pray for your favor on our church. God, I pray for your blessing on our church. I pray for workers. We know that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. 
I pray you land hard on the hearts of some this morning to give their lives over to serving in the church, whatever that costs them. And renew a commitment in us as well, Father. Help us not to grow weary in doing good. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.